Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Crop Vitality and Thiosol, the original thiosulfate liquid fertilizer. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor of No-Till Farmer. For a special episode of our popular No-Till History Series, No-Till Farmer and Farm Equipment President Mike Lesseter pinch hits for his dad, Frank, in interviewing his friend and machinery industry colleague, John Schmeiser, who is the COO of the North American Equipment Dealers Association. John details a very personal story of how his late dad, Percy, a no-till farmer and equipment dealer, threw down versus Monsanto in a David versus Goliath lawsuit that went all the way to Canada's Supreme Court. The case not only garnered national attention on farmers' rights, but also spurred two movies, including a major motion picture in 2020, starring Christopher Walken as John's dad, Percy, in the movie by the same name. Hello, everybody. We're here with John Schmeiser, the Chief Operating Officer of the uh, North American Equipment Dealers Association, who represents the national interests of the farm machinery dealers out there. But we're here mostly to talk about his late father, Percy, who made a very significant contribution to farmers' rights and how he stood up to agribusiness in Monsanto back in the day. I've had the pleasure of knowing John a long time and have actually seen two movies about the family here. And those of you who who are familiar with Percy or or remember him or have seen the documentary are going to hear a very familiar voice. John, I watched the documentary and, and I hear Percy in your words all the time. You, you guys share the same voice, don't you? Really? You know what? I, I think that's the first time that somebody has ever said that to me. And it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I, I heard it. Uh, some of the mannerisms, uh, it, it came true here. I also think I saw you on the documentary on the walk back from the judgment wearing a green Wind shirt that I suspect might have been a Saskatchewan Rough Riders apparel. Yeah. So, you know, the thing they say about people who grow up in Saskatchewan, you can, you just never forget where you're from. And there's two things in Saskatchewan that, that people, you know, they look at and that are very important. And that is number one, it's the beer you drink and the football team that you cheer for. So, uh, those are two very important things. So when you leave Saskatchewan, like I have, you still have to cheer for the riders. I think it's, I think that's mandatory. And yeah, that probably was me because when the trial was on at the lower court level, it was, it was on for two weeks in duration. And I think I was there for about half of the, of the court sittings. And so there was a lot of media interest. And so going into the courtroom and coming out of the courtroom, there's cameras waiting all the time so i did show up in a in a number of clips uh, during that time <laughs> i'm sure yeah. i look a little bit younger than i do today though in those clips yeah you were also sporting white pants which i understand you're not supposed to do after a certain month of the year but we'll yeah. let that one go <laughs> that was in june so i was safe i was on safe ground man <laughs> all right good good well the main theme today is going to be to update or, or remind the the new generation of farmer what was at stake and what your family did, how it changed the landscape. And I guess to kickstart, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about the family farm operation up in Saskatchewan and kind of, we'll start there and then filter our way in. Yeah, so my great-grandfather came to Saskatchewan in 1903 uh, from Austria via Minnesota. 
So uh, my grandfather was born in Minnesota. Um, his wife, my grandmother, was was born in South Dakota. And um, it was a very common pathway of immigration that was organized through the Catholic Church at that time. And so my great-grandfather came to Canada to farm. Uh, the opportunity to farm in Austria just was not there for him. So he started with 160 acres of land that the Canadian government gave to him at no charge because he homesteaded on that land. And eventually my grandfather's older brother took over that original family farm and, and grew it. And my grandfather went off on a, on a different route and started working in a hotel and eventually buying a hotel and, and then decided to get into the farm equipment business. And in uh, 1931, he set up a single store JIK dealership in Bruno, Saskatchewan. And, and for those familiar with the province, it's about 60 miles east of Saskatoon, where CNH has a, you know, a very big plant. So about 60 miles east of that plant. And that same year when he set up the farm equipment dealership, he also bought his first quarter of land that was about a mile north of, of where the dealership uh, was located. And that was, that was the start. And then my father got involved in the dealership in the late 40s, was married in uh, 1952, and took over the dealership in 1955. And it changed from a J.K. dealership at that time to a John Deere dealership. And at the same time, every five years or so, dad would add another quarter of land. And so now... Uh, when my dad stopped farming and, uh, and we still have all the family farmland in our possession, it's 1200 acres. And, uh, so the farm grew at the same time as the dealerships grew. So, uh, we dropped John Deere in 1962 and took on Kotchut in 1962. That became White, which became Agco, set up a second location in 1986 where we had, uh, New Holland. And then in 2003, my dad and my brother-in-law, who were involved in the dealership, sold out to a neighboring uh, multi-store New Holland dealership called Farm World. And so when I grew up, I had the privilege of working both in the dealership and on the farm. And primarily, we grew uh, wheat, barley, oats, uh, a lot of canola, even grew mustard as well. And... Um, they primarily stayed with those commodities. We never had livestock. It was always grains and, and oil seeds. And, and when I would come home from school, when I was in high school, it was I was going one or two paths. It was either going to be in the dealership doing something or I was going to be on the farm. And uh, so I think the first time I ever set foot in a tractor where I was actually doing something like pulling an implement or working with a front end loader or picking stones or something like that, I was probably 12 or 13 years old. Uh, maybe even earlier than that, but so very, very familiar with the farming side, very familiar with the dealership side. And funny thing, Mike, when I graduated college, I decided to pursue a different path. But having said all of that, you know, the expectation was on me that I, after college was done, the year of college was done, or the last semester was done, I would come home and I'd be working on the farm or working the dealership. I would come home at harvest time to help combine. And I haven't had to do that in the last couple of years, but I, I'm still you know, one of those people where I have to drive through the countryside when harvest is going on. It's just one of those things in my blood. You know, I'm, I'm making mental notes and I drive by fields about what stage they're at and, and then maybe 
two or three weeks down the road about how the crops have matured. It's just something that's just stuck with me. Very similar to when I drive by an equipment dealership where uh, I'm always checking out how much used equipment they have on the lot. So, you know, I classify myself as very fortunate today to work for the Dealers Association that, you know, works with our with our customers and our farming customers. You know, our, our dealership, our success is dependent on our farmer customers. But I But I know that angle as well. And for me to have the opportunity to work for the Dealers Association where our members are serving the customers, uh, I could say on one hand, you could say that's a great fit for my upbringing. On the other hand, I've just viewed it as an opportunity of a lifetime to be able to take something that was ingrained in me from an early age and be able to support that sector. Yeah, yeah. Outstanding alignment there on these two things coming together. Your family farm in Western Canada, kind of a, a hotbed of, of no-till. Um, your region embraced no-tillage far, far quicker uh, than most of the rest of the continent. What, what can you tell me about your earliest recollections of, of no-till and, and why your, you know, your dad and the neighbors were interested in this, this new method of doing things? Yeah. So the one thing about Saskatchewan is it's windy all the time. And um, I just recall when, when growing up about seeing just big clouds of dust in the air from our Summerfall lands and, and, you know, our customers at the time, the practice, the practice of farmers at the time was, was cultivate for weeds during a summer fall year. And, and maybe we would have um, crops in for three, four years, then summer fall, right? Just because the lack of moisture, it's all dry land farming. So, so everybody would, would summer fall. I would be you know, one, of the, one of the responsibilities that I had. But we had some very forward thinking, short line manufacturers based in Western Canada that were the leaders, the innovators when it came to zero till. And, and these were you know, companies like uh, like Borgo uh, and Morris, uh, to name a few. And they really led um, acknowledging that erosion was a problem. Um, and um, that's why I think in Western Canada, our customers adopted this technology a little earlier than anywhere else in North America just because of, of the conditions were very supportive of, of, of no-till. And we were a Borgo dealer. Uh, my father was a personal friend of Frank Borgo, uh, who started Borgo Industries, and they were one of the first ones out there. And very quickly, because of the brand reputation and the product designed, designed for Western Canadian farming, uh, uh, Western Canadian farming conditions, I think that's why it, why it took off. There was there was trust placed in these manufacturers. They had a good support network with dealers, but it made a lot of sense just from a practical point of view. And today, I, I just look back and think about it that we would cultivate a summer follow field probably three times over the summer, and then after winter we cultivate it one more time by preparing the seed bed for seeding, and then we pray for rain. So, you know, for on four separate occasions, we were taking the moisture out of the soil and then hoping that the rains hit at a time of time. And what's really happened now is productivity has just increased substantially with zero till because we're, I don't think the amount of rainfall we get has changed at all, you know, since that time period in the 70s or the 80s. But the bushels per acre certainly has because we're preserving more moisture in the soil. I think it's just a credit 
to the manufacturers in Western Canada that have de developed this technology that has been adopted worldwide. And and one thing too, Mike, that was surprising to me when when I started in this role, I was a little surprised that no-till was how later it was adopted in other parts in North America because um, by the time I started working with the association, there was less than five percent of the farmers were uh, were not using no-till, whereas that was a much higher number. Uh, in the U.S., so I I was surprised by that. I just assumed that it was adopted like it was in Saskatchewan and across North America, but it hadn't. But I think we're we're at the point now where it's it's pretty much that is the practice that is the most common. Yeah, we're we're getting there, but uh, Western Canada is still leading the leading the way by a long shot. Typically, you know, I talk to people said it's been up here, it's been commonplace for decades up here. It's still still struggling to become mainstream in in many parts of the U.S., but um, well, kudos to you and your the manufacturers, the dealers, and the farmers up there who who figured it out and it made it made it work. And I know it's has a lot to do with champions in the local area that that make something like that happen. Wow! And you know, for those two companies, Borgo and and Morris, they were Morris was known for their rod weeder, Borgo was known for their cultivator, and they adapted to survive because there's absolutely no way that those two companies could survive on those uh, foundation products that, that they had when they started with. And they've also moved into like air drills, air seeders as well too, and, and some other products. So they've evolved as, as well, but their uh, incredible foresight and the ability to create these products is really a, a success story. Good one. Well, I think we'll... we'll kind of change to the, the personal story we have here. And I got I to gotta tell you that my dad, Frank, and I, my mom, and my son all sat down to watch the uh, big movie starring Christopher Walken as your, as your father, Percy. And um, it was uh, Percy versus Goliath. I, I want to bring this story back out to, for our listeners, our viewers today to, to understand what that was, was like and the impact it had. So I guess if you'll kind of take us to mid nineties and when Roundup Ready Canola came in and, and kind of pick up the the story as as you remember it, what laid ahead for your father unknowingly uh come harvest time in that year in 96, 97, I think it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh my understanding is uh Monsanto came out with Roundup Ready corn and beans around 94, 95, but it was 1996 when Roundup Ready Canola was introduced. And um, the one thing about Saskatchewan that is very picturesque in the summer in the summertime is canola field after canola field in full bloom, that bright yellow flower is it's just something that's home for me. And when Monsanto released um, Roundup Ready Canola, it was on a very limited basis in, in their first year. And there were some early adopters and dad was not one of them. They had a series of informational meetings and dad had never gone to one of those informational meetings, but uh, we were really only into the first full year of Roundup Ready Canola being uh, widely grown. And, and by widely grown, I, I still think it was maybe 30 to 40% of the canola that was, that was grown in the province at the time. Dad's approach on this was, first of all, dad, my dad is not, or was not, an organic farmer. He never was an organic farmer. You know, we we used chemicals. In fact, we we had a fertilizer dealership one time. We sold chemicals as well too. We used 
uh, weed control chemicals in our farm. We even custom spraying out of the dealership. So um, never been an organic farmer, but when Roundup Ready was introduced um, and in some conversations he had with other farmers and keep in mind, farmers are coming into the dealership all the time. He didn't exactly agree with the approach of the distribution of the chemical because what we were doing in canola, we were putting pre-emergent chemicals into the soil, okay? And so dad's concern was if you're spraying after the weeds are coming up in a dry land farming area, the weeds are gonna be taking precious moisture away from the canola plants. So philosophically, he had an issue with it. And that's why he, he never purchased the seed, never went to any of the information meetings because the practice, what he was using by incorporating chemicals into the soil, he thought was better water conservation, okay? The cost difference between incorporating the chemicals into the soil like we were doing or spraying with Roundup was significant, okay? Uh, Roundup was considerably cheaper. But when you take the technology use fee that, that Monsanto asked for for $15 an acre, plus the cost of Roundup, it was pretty much a wash, right? And so that was another factor that, that played into dad's thinking. So, so fast forward, there's all these stories going around that Monsanto had hired an investigations firm and, and of uh, what they had done is gone to the county or in Saskatchewan, we call them rural municipalities. They, they got a map and they would go out and do samples on everybody's conventional canola, okay? So they would, they would match up the map with their database of who was a licensed Roundup Ready user who had, per, who had signed the technology use agreement. And then they went to all these other growers and said, hey, you're growing our product and, and we have a patent on it and you don't have permission to pay us this money. And pretty much every farmer that was confronted with that is capitulated and, and paid them, paid them $15 an acre. So we had heard that this was going on. So fast forward to the next year, we had grown 1,030 acres of canola or seeded 1,030 acres of canola that year. And about um, six weeks after seeding, um, we received one of these demand letters from Monsanto. And so we that found that interesting because he had saved his seed from the previous year, had it cleaned at a mill called Humbert, Humboldt Flower Mills. So how could he be using Monsanto seed when he took it out of his bins from the year before, had it cleaned and treated and then seeded. So he found it quite ludicrous. But, but earlier in the spring before he seeded, he, he saw some volunteer canola plants growing along the highway. And this was on one, one 160 acre piece of field. And this is also a main route to a canola crushing plant. So he didn't think anything of it. He, he sprayed them with Roundup and about half the plants died, half didn't. And so then he immediately got the cultivator out and, and tilled it under. Now this was also a summer follow field the year before. And so he never really gave it a second thought um, until this demand letter came. And then the demand letter said, uh, we've done tests on all of your fields and you're growing Roundup Ready Canola without a license, pay us $15,000. So 15,000, or I'm sorry, $15, $15 times 1,030 acres, I think about just under $19,000. Pay us this $19,000 and we'll go away. And if you don't, we'll take you to court. 
And um, the the one thing that you know, my father was was at the time not looking for a fight, uh, very principled, knew that this was going on, and uh, um, obviously thought he could reason with him and say, "Hey, there was a mistake here, and you guys have made a mistake." And uh, that's really what started the whole legal process off after that. So he got, they had been sampling on his field without his knowledge. Letter comes, says, you need to, you need to open your wallet and make this go away. And tell us how he reacted at that point. Well, first of all, it was shock and disbelief. And um, then he went to um, uh, our family legal counsel, family friend, longtime family friend, um, and shared him the letter. and. And he, he said words to the effect you have two options. Um, pay it and it goes away. Uh, or you can fight it. But if you fight it, this is going to be something where they'll try and bleed you dry. And the lawyer shared that advice because he had a number of other farmers who had walked into his office with the same letter. And one of them even thought about pursuing this against Monsanto and going to court with him. And I think he already got to like 15 or $20,000 in legal bills and said, this is going to get out of control. So that was the advice that dad got. And uh, the other thing that was happening at the same time, which was really amusing, I, I say amusing now, but at the time we were rather curious about this. Uh, when you signed... Um, the agreement with Monsanto, whether it was the technology use agreement or that demand letter and paid them, it was all done under a point of confidentiality. Okay, so nothing was to be public on this. Well, the major farm newspaper in Western Canada at the time was the Western Producer. And like weeks after dad got the demand letter, all of a sudden there's this story in the Western Producer sharing that Monsanto has filed a, a demand letter against Percy Schweizer for use of Roundup Ready Canola. So we're wondering, why in the world would this all of a sudden end up in the media? And, you know, I think everybody can come up with a theory on that. All of a sudden, this became very public. And I think that strengthened my father's resolve a little bit. And um, he was, now that this was public and other farmers knew, our customers knew, it was... I think sometimes he feels he was back into a corner to try and defend himself and clear his name. He's very principled. And it was, you know, I'm not going to stir up a check for $19,000 for something that I didn't do. That's, I think, where he went down the road of uh, standing up in court to them. Would he have been considered more, more of a public figure than the average farmer because of the dealership and some of his other involvement? Yeah, absolutely. So he was a member of the Legislative Assembly, which, you know, to your American viewers is the equivalent of a, a state house representative. Um, he was the mayor of the community for 25 years. He was on a lot of um, boards and commissions, uh, nursing home board, Saskatchewan real estate board, uh, with, through the dealership, chair of the White Farm Equipment Dealers Council. Um I think we had a very successful business. And, and so I think one can make the conclusion that was part of the reason that this was made public was because of the profile that, you know, that, that dad had, had received. Um, but 
at, at the same time, um, I think that just strengthened his resolve uh, to fight the issue. So he is now at this, as man of principle, said, I'm not going to write this check. I'm going to, I'm going to hang in here and do what's right for the, for the farmers everywhere. Tell us what happened next and then the chronology of all that ensued from there on out. Yeah. So, so first of all, my dad's younger brother used to be the Dean of law at the university of Saskatchewan. So we had some, what I would call free legal advice coming from my uncle. And he referred us to a patent lawyer in Saskatoon and that individual's name was Terry Zakreski. And that's, that's what started the, the relationship with dad and Terry. And, um, um, that's where they started planning then, um, for the court proceedings. Uh, Monsanto did not move from their position. It's either you pay us the $15 an acre, we're going to court and the communication coming back, uh, from dad and counsel was, we're not going to pay this because for a number of reasons at the time, you took samples without our knowledge, you were trespassing on our land. We didn't use it. We have the receipt of where we had our canola cleaned and treated from Humboldt flour mills. All of those reasons were provided back to Monsanto, but eventually there was no opportunity for common ground. And, and so uh, uh, Monsanto filed their action in court and the court date was set. And that takes us to, I guess it was 1998 now. And so it was heard in the federal court in Saskatoon um, in um, June of uh, June of 1998. And following the lower court decision, which ruled in favor of Monsanto, uh, then it went to the appeal court, uh, federal appeal court. And that, I believe, was, um, um, I'm going to say 2001. And then after that, the Supreme Court. Uh, Monsanto's approach was very clear in, in the court uh, proceedings. They have a patent on this life form. They have a patent on a gene that's inserted into the plant. They have a technology use agreement. And dad did not sign the technology use agreement, so he has violated their patent. You can look at it on one hand about farmers' rights and the responsibilities of manufacturers or, or, or seed companies about where does their rights start and where does the farmer's, you know, rights uh, begin. But really what it came down to was an interpretation of Canada's patent law. That was that was the big issue. Now the imp the implications to farmers were growing as the court cases went on, or the the, the court proceeded through the or the case proceeded through the courts, because during this time we were starting to see lots of involuntary canola growing up in the countryside. We're starting to hear stories of of organic canola growers who had their canola contaminated by Roundup Ready Canola. All these other stories started to pop up afterwards. So those that's what became the bigger implications. And then even further to that, Monsanto was making applications to the Canadian and US governments to patent more, more, more seeds. They, they were looking to patent Roundup Ready Wheat as well too. And it already started trials on Roundup Ready Wheat. So that was the whole implications about this. Uh, but it really, in the court dialogue, it was a lot about patent law, which, quite frankly, was it was tough to stay awake. 
um, just because of the sophistication of it, the technicalities of it, the, the verbiage used in patent law. But that was ultimately what the issue was, Monsanto protecting their patent. So this this uh, suit got rather ugly, as I understand. Um, yeah, it did, because as part of the process, dad was raising money. And there was a number of what I would call anti-Monsanto people out there. They just automatically gravitated towards dad uh, because of this. And then there were our customers. <laughs> our customers. Um, and these are long-time, third-generation customers at the dealership that were very supportive of dad and kind of saw the issue of, well, hey, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. And so there was there was a long time period there where people would stop in the dealership and drop off a check to mom and dad uh, to, to help him with his legal fees. But what also was happening was Monsanto was doing everything possible to destroy dad's reputation. And um, that... For the life of me, I, I, I just couldn't figure the strategy out here, Mike, because, you know, by this time, we had been in business with the dealership for 60 years. You know, all, all of us had grown up there. All of our family friends, all of our customers were there. We knew every farmer within a 60-mile radius, you know, either a customer or a potential customer. And our customers started coming into the dealership to say that, yeah, Monsanto rep came to see me and offered me $25,000 in free chemical to testify against you in court. Or they said this about you. And, and perhaps the most bizarre one was uh, when I was on uh, the old North American Equipment Dealers Association, when we were going to board meetings, there was a dealer from Ontario who was their dealer representative on the data board. He told me a story. He asked the Monsanto rep, what's this deal with Percy out in Western Canada? Tell me about it. Not letting on that he knew me. And knew me quite well. And um, this Monsanto rep said, well, the whole family is bad. And we know he stole it. We know who he stole it from. And, uh, and the dealer said, said to him, he goes, what do you mean the whole family is bad? And uh, he said, well, one of Percy's sons in jail for selling drugs. And this dealer said, oh, I, I didn't know that. And so the dealer told me at the time, he didn't say anything to the Monsanto rep, but the next meeting, well, no, it wasn't even the next meeting. He called me that afternoon and said, this is what you know they said. And he goes, I wonder, was that true? And, and I knew it wasn't me. And I have a brother. And so I knew it wasn't him. And so we we laughed about it. you know. That, but that's the extent of reputation harm that they were trying to do that. And there's been, there was so many things that were said outside the courtroom to farmers, our customers, that were never said in the courtroom, were never presented as evidence. It was amazing the lengths that they would go to to try and destroy dad's reputation. And it's portrayed in the movie as well, too. You know, private investigators following them around. And um, I remember this happening where, where I'm, I'm living in Calgary, so I'm 450 miles away from my parents. So when I came home, my wife and I came home for a weekend and uh, we pulled into our driveway my parents had a rather long driveway um, from the road and and here's this vehicle sitting in the middle of the driveway it's just sitting there and um, when i pulled up behind it the vehicle just got out of the way let me in didn't think anything of it probably an hour two hours later when i'm visiting with my parents and look out the window and i saw the vehicle still sitting there and just out of curiosity i asked dad what is that and he goes, well, we, we, we think it's somebody from Monsanto spying on us because 
When we leave the driveway, they back out, they let us go, but they seem to follow us around town. And uh, and then when we come back, they kind of sit there. And then a couple weeks later, then some people in our community of Bruno have actually told dad that they spoke to them, that uh, they almost, you know, com were completely transparent about what they were doing. They, they, were, they were using phrases like we're gathering evidence, you know, for the trial and we're speaking to people and everything. So, yeah, that was the unfortunate part about this. In the end, we found we found part of it comical, you know, found of it amusing. But make no mistake, at the time, it was very stressful for my parents. It it was stressful. I saw the the interview with your father and the and the documentary. You talked about how the 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 bank under pressure from Monsanto to take all their investments away, it closed out his his uh, trust account at the local bank how there were th threatening phone calls and trying to fracture the the local community there um just things that you wouldn't wouldn't expect to to have to deal with in something like this but yeah the local fertilizer distributor was pressured by monsanto to not sell dad fertilizer uh stuff stuff like that and uh it really divided the community and uh the community didn't like the attention they just it, it's just a lot of people wanted this whole thing go to go away um, just because of what was going on behind the scenes as the preparation for trial was taking place. And so, yeah, um, there's there is a good core of support of farmers, our, our customers um, that were very supportive for dad. And I think we lost track of where I was, was at least 20 that Monsanto approached that wanted to testify against dad. And and the farmers didn't like that pressure because they were being told, well, you might not be able to buy chemical if you don't do this. And so in the end, the end result of that pressure tactics was there wasn't one farmer that testified against dad in court. There were farmers that testified in, in support of dad. So. And they've made multiple movies about this. The drama is very real, but I'm, I'm, I'm told it's an accurate portrayal. This must have looked really daunting at times. We were had there were multiple appeals involved. This went to the Supreme Court in Ottawa, correct? I mean, tell me how that how that felt in in as the the legal bills were stacking up and what your your family faced at at one point here. So when the first judgment came down from the lower court, it was it was like a sucker punch to the stomach. Uh, it, it it was um, it was just before a single judge, um, and. I think dad's uh, defense was on the practicality side of this is farming practices. This is what farmers do. Monsanto's approach was we have a, we have a patent. It's a valid patent. He's using our patent. And there was one of the, th one of the statements that, that came out of the lower court decision was uh, it didn't matter if it was 100% contamination of Roundup Ready canola or one, two, three percent contamination of Roundup Ready canola. The assumption would be made that all of that belongs to Monsanto because of their patent. That's how strong the patent law is. So that was that's where the gut punch was. It was because we had independent tests on all of Dad's fields that grew canola. So um, we harvested the canola. It was stored in our bins. We kept samples of it. Samples of it went for, you know, cleaning for seed for the next year. Um, so we still had samples of our canola from which field it came from. 
and the highest contamination was 66%. And that was on the field that was along the road that went to the canola processing plant. The rest of the fields tested in at like 3% or, or 5%. So how it even became 3 or 5% is, is, is anybody's guess. But by that time, there was lots of volunteer canola growing. So that may have been it. But anyway, that was the lower court decision. And, and uh, when they said it didn't matter what the percentage was, it was like, wow, this really seems lopsided towards the seed company as opposed to the farmer. So appeal was filed. And, and honestly, Mike, I, I can't give you the details of the basis of appeal, but there was probably like 20 or 25 uh, reasons why thought an appeal should be heard. And when the appeal was heard, it was heard before three federal judges. The Court of Appeal had three. And I sat in a couple of days of that testimony. And the most obvious thing to me was the lack of knowledge that the judges had about agriculture in general. And uh, I didn't think that that was a, a good thing. So fast forward, Court of Appeal rules 3-0 against uh, dad on his appeal and Monsanto's judgment is, is upheld. And, um, here's the significance of, of this. We're not talking about $19,000 anymore. Now we're talking about costs. So Monsanto was asking for costs and already the bill was over a million dollars from legal expenses that Monsanto was presenting. So the $19,000 didn't become the issue. The issue became Monsanto's legal fees. And so that's why dad was, was raising money. I, I assume they had an army of lawyers on, on the Monsanto side, right? Yeah, yeah. So at least eight lawyers from Monsanto sitting in the courtroom, like three or four at the main table at every step, lower court, appeals court, Supreme Court, and counsel from St. Louis, counsel, local counsel from Saskatoon, counsel from Toronto. Their main patent lawyer was, was from Toronto. And so, yeah, there's some pretty big legal fees being paid out at, at, at the time. So after the um, appeal court ruled 3-0 in favor of Monsanto, there was a big discussion between dad and, and Terry as to whether or not they should apply to the Supreme Court. So it's not automatic that the Supreme Court is going to hear the case. They have to make an application to it. And I think Terry pegged it as less than a 50% chance that the Supreme Court would hear it. And and dad was of the opinion of still back to why he decided to fight them in court in the first place. And so the application was made and um, the statement that came back from the Supreme Court was that, yes, we are going to hear the case and here's the time frame of when it's going to be heard. And, and the only other statement they made to Terry was, we find that this is an interesting case. And what does that mean? I don't know, but it's something that stuck with me forever. And then shortly thereafter, the Canadian Supreme Court heard a case on a patent on a Harvard mouse. Apparently, they wanted to patent a gene that was inserted into a mouse. And the Canadian Supreme Court released their decision about two months after on this, saying that a, a patent on a living thing uh, wasn't valid. And so we think that was that was tied to the decision okay. to hear your dad's case. Yeah. And so then it went to the uh, to the Supreme Court. 
So at, at the at the end, he's facing a million dollar penalty if this doesn't work, but committed, undaunted, still going to pursue this. Yeah. And so million dollars plus because it was a million dollars after the Court of Appeal. So it could be even higher after the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court rules against that. And so for those who don't know, this is what the Supreme Court ruled. They ruled nine to zero in favor of dad that he didn't have to pay the $15 an acre. Okay. And the reason why, the consensus reason why he didn't have to pay Monsanto is when he sold his canola, he didn't get any more for it. If it was Roundup Ready canola or if it was conventional canola, he got the same price for it. So there's just no distinction by any buyer in Canada that they're going to pay a premium or they're going to pay less depending if it was Roundup Ready or, or canola. So on that, Dad one nine zero. There was two other uh, avenues for appeal, and the second one was was there infringement, and the third one was does Monsanto have a valid patent? So first one on the infringement, they said Canada's patent law is very very clear. Even if you unintentionally have possession of a patent, the patent holder has rights because you've infringed on the patent. Okay. Now the Supreme Court only ruled five four in favor of Monsanto on that one. And then on the third one, does Monsanto have a valid patent? The answer was yes. So they, they said that there was a distinction between the Harvard mouse case because it was something with a heartbeat and a plant. Okay. And so that was the distinction. And the Supreme Court ruled five four that Monsanto had a valid patent. So when this all shakes out, my Monsanto got what they wanted. The money wasn't the issue, right? Monsanto got what they wanted. They got a valid patent and they proved that there was infringement so that they could enforce their patent. But on the most important case to dad, it was he didn't have to pay Monsanto anything. And the other key thing, the other key piece of evidence in this that really weighed things in dad's favor in the Supreme Court was if you have Roundup Ready canola, it doesn't automatically guarantee it's going to bushel more. It's not designed for dry conditions or wet conditions or anything like that. The only application with Roundup Ready canola is that you can spray it with Roundup and the plant won't die. Okay. And the one thing that Monsanto could not get around and went to great lengths to try and prove is that year in question, dad never sprayed his canola with Roundup. Mm-hmm. So the argument at the Supreme Court was not only did he not receive any more or any less when he sold it, he never took advantage of one and only application of the Roundup Ready canola seed. And that is you can spray it and it doesn't die. The plant doesn't die. Right. And he didn't, he didn't spray it. So because he didn't spray it, weighed in his favor. And I think a big, another part of the big reason why Court ruled nine to zero in his favor. Mm-hmm. You were you were with him the day that the judgment, the phone call came yeah. in, correct? Yeah. yeah, I was also in the Supreme Court as well, and that's why I made it into the movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, the Supreme Court hearing was probably the most surreal experience that I I had. Um, just being in the Supreme Court for the first time and having a case that involves your family is at another level. And then when I look at all of the stress, the anxiety, 
the nervousness of, um, you know, what could happen. Um, yeah. And then after the Supreme Court hearing was done, perhaps the largest media scrum that I have ever seen. And, and, I, and I've seen some for, for prime ministers. I've seen some for presidents. But this was crazy. There was media from all over the world there. And uh, once that was done, my wife and I went to a restaurant, had a meal, and looked at each other and said, did what we see today really take place? You know, it, it, it was just, just a, lot to, a lot to take in. And so then when the judgment was announced, um, I was there as well as mom and dad and myself, and we were sitting in Terry Zakreski's law office in Saskatoon. And um, um, we were told that the call was going to come at 10 o'clock and, you know, 10 o'clock and 10 seconds, the phone rings and uh, the legal se uh, secretary says Supreme Court's on the line. And, and uh, within a minute, Terry just thrusts his arm in the air like this in, in celebration with this big smile on his face. And immediately we thought, this is good. And then Terry's reaction changed. And uh, it, was, it wasn't as strong and serious, but it was more focused, I guess. And he was listening and listening and listening. And the call went on for about another five minutes. And so you can imagine, we're sitting there. And Terry's initial reaction is, is yes. And then all of a sudden, it's, what's going on? And so, and, and I think, on a couple of occasions while Terry was still on the phone with the clerk at the Supreme Court, my mom was saying, what's going on? And, and Terry, you know, kind of let me finish, right? And so once he got off the call, he hung up the phone and, and he said, you're going to like the news. And I'm going to phrase it this way. Percy, you're my client. And it's my duty to act in the best interest of the client and give the best advice to the client. And here we are today where we have the best outcome for you as my client because the Supreme Court's voted nine to zero that you don't have to pay them anything. And that's when we celebrated a little bit. And once we did that, then what were you so concerned about? And, and he said they went over the rationale, kind of a, an abbreviated rationale of why the majority went nine zero in dad's favor. And then they advised him about the 5-4 and the other two issues and the majority opinion on both of those. And so he, he summed it up afterward. He, he goes, whether or not Monsanto has a valid patent or not is really not your fight. Okay. And it has no implications on you. You're not a seed grower, you're a farmer, farm equipment dealer. So that's Monsanto's business. You know, whether or not there is an infringement, yeah, that's part of it. But really, there's no penalty to you because you infringed on Monsanto's patent because you have this 9-0 decision. So that's why I say Monsanto got what they want out of it. And dad got the most important area of appeal to him. But, you know, immediately uh, we went to a press conference after that. And before we even walked into the, in the room of the press conference, all the media had been spun by Monsanto's communications people that Percy had lost and Monsanto had won. It, it was, it was amazing. And still, and still to this day, you know, Monsanto's, you know, speaking notes are on this, that Percy lost, but Monsanto won. They just refused to acknowledge that it was a split decision. 
So there's been a, on a couple of occasions where just some media friends, I said, you know what, why don't you go back and look at the Supreme Court, you know, decision. And, uh, and that's been cleared up. But, you know, I'm, we're all past the time period of explaining if people want to think you lost, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what was most impactful on our family, that, that financial penalty was gone. The weight of the world was lifted off my mom's shoulders. You know, Monsanto had put caveats on all of our farmland so we couldn't borrow against them to finance the court trial. So my mom was of the opinion that there would be locks on, on her house before she even got home that day if, if all three went. And and part of the, the decision of, of uh, the 9-0 that went in dad's favor, the court also ruled that each party pays their own costs. And so that was that was in the decision as well. So and to Monsanto's credit, before we even left the lawyer's office, they called and, and said that they had removed all of the caveats that they had on dad's land. You know, they had they had removed that fairly quickly. So we'll we'll give them that. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, to this to this day, it it never ceases to amaze me where I'll run into somebody who may have heard about it and, and they'll go, Well, he lost. And it's just like you know, sometimes if you're explaining your losing, so you just let it slide. Right. We'll come back to the episode in a moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Crop Vitality and Thiosol, for supporting today's podcast. It's as important as ever to ensure you're getting the most out of your fertilizer. Recent studies from Auburn University and Crop Vitality show when paired with a UAN solution, Thiosulfate fertilizers slow down the process that causes you to lose your nitrogen into the atmosphere and groundwater. Visit CropVitality.com to explore the studies on nitrification inhibition. Check out the ebook Nitrogen and the Thiosulfate Factor and learn more about Crop Vitality's thiosulfate fertilizers. That's CropVitality.com. And now, let's get back to the conversation with Mike Lesseter and John Schmeiser. Well, b- before we kind of get into some of the lasting significance and impact of this, um, had, it, had it ruled against Percy and Louisa, what would have happened? Would the farm have been lost? Would, was the dealership in trouble? What would have happened had it gone the other way? But we never saw what Monsanto's legal costs were on the Supreme Court. We knew it was a million dollar bill once it got past the Court of Appeal. So our guess was it could have been twice, maybe three times as much. So it could have been as high as maybe three, four million dollars. Yeah, that would have been all all the land was at risk. All of our real estate was at risk. The dealership certainly was at risk. Absolutely. And- I wanted to ask that question because this this required enormous courage to to do what what was done here at, at that time. So yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and and there would be time periods when our, we were together as family where this was a lot while I was going through the, the, the courts, the various levels of the court, where this is the last thing that we wanted to talk about. But then there was also some times where there were some pretty frank discussions that were, that were had. And ideally, you know, we, we, we wanted it all, it all to go away. We wouldn't wish that it would happen on anybody just because of how consuming it was at times. And so we were all aware that sometimes when you take a principled stand, it can be very costly, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
uh, fortunately it worked out for the betterment. But the other thing too is my my parents, uh, even my mom to this day, just so grateful for all the people that provided financial support. Um, it, it, it's crazy. Like uh, um, somebody would see an article in a newspaper in Alabama and they cut the article out and there'd be a check for $5, you know, sent. And it just say something, I can't help, you know, uh, with a lot, but, you know, here's something to help you. And, and, and just amazing about that. And it was not only North America, it was, it was all over the world where people provided support, financial support, which really helped a lot on the legal cost. But if Monsanto was awarded their cost, there's no way dad would have been able to raise that money. We, uh, it would have completely devastated us. Wow. But kind of want to talk about the significance of all of this. And it was at a very interesting time for agriculture. We got, we got, you know, Roundup, Roundup ready technology available on a number of crops. The, the, the world is changing very quickly. Um, Percy could have settled this thing on the first phone call for 20 grand and signed an NDA and never been able to speak about it again. Um, tell us what happens if, if this doesn't play out in the public setting that it did and created this awareness, not only for the, the wheat debate that followed, but for the ability for farmers to stand up and, and represent their interests, fight for themselves. Tell, tell us what life might've looked like had this never happened. They certainly would have pursued payment for their patent a lot more aggressively uh, than what they did afterward. And I think one result of this too is because dad never sprayed the canola with Roundup. That was an avenue for mediation. If if Monsanto approached somebody and said, hey, we want to pay, we want you to pay if the farmer could prove that he never sprayed it because it was being you no know, mentioned by the Supreme Court, right? So then you have both of those things that you're going to get the same price for it, but, but yeah, you didn't spray it. So in the in the judgment, and this is going back some time since I looked at it, but it was it was very clear about the fact that because he didn't spray, he didn't take advantage of the of the patent technology. That was part of the rationale for it. So, um, I I I know on a couple of occasions, Dad had told had been told by by people that he had met that they were they were come to some uh, a resolution out of court where they didn't have to pay because they were able to prove that they did not purchase either the technology or the chemical to spray it. And so I think that's that's one right there. I think they would have been more aggressive. I think the other thing too is, is like we mentioned earlier, I think they would have probably got patent approval on wheat. And and even the wheat grower groups in Canada were not comfortable with that at all. Now the mindset's changed a little bit now because we've got a couple of decades under our belt, but at the time they were concerned about losing markets overseas if Roundup Ready wheat came into market. So I think that was a big impact. And then the other thing is, is um, Monsanto's reputation really took a hit on this. And um, that I think probably had some impact in the purchase by Bayer. And uh, there is, there is a Bayer Monsanto tie into the movie as well too, that we can get into a little bit later, but, but uh, Monsanto, when you sue your customer, Okay, and you're very public about suing your customer, and then you 
stand on a pedestal with a megaphone and boast everybody about how you won after suing your customer. Mm -hmm. Not every customer responds positively <laughs> to them. Right. right. And so, um, and then the other behind the scenes stuff as well too, from what, you know, the investigators were saying to our customers at the, at the dealership, that didn't go over very well either with, you know, with, with customers about how to divide farmer versus farmer. Now this is, this is a community where if a farmer got sick during harvest, everybody else came around to help take the crop up, right? You know, and, and now all of a sudden you've got this division there that was, that was very, very evident. And, and um, um, it all circled back to Monsanto's tactics. Their public relations approach was maybe different than what customers were expecting to see from a seed company. You think that um, there was a lesson learned here one that farmers can stand up and fight and actually have a shot at winning. And secondly, maybe the behavior of big agribusiness may have been changed somewhat. I I don't know about the latter. I I I hope. And and you know, I, I certainly see it from the equipment industry perspective where, you know, our manufacturers make a good product and they're able to make that good product because customers are successful and dealers are successful. They can reinvest in R&D and everything. So they're really mm -hmm. attuned to the, to the customer. So I, I hope every business that, that you know, works with our farmer customers doesn't take them for granted. And you know, don't take them for granted that, that the business is always going to be there just because of, of the product that they make. So yeah, I, uh, I think um, there were some lessons learned uh, out of this. And um, if it makes for a better company that's dealing, you know, through our supply chain, I think we all win, quite frankly. Let's pivot over to the movie for a minute. And um, before I, I turn it over to you, a couple observations. One, I think everyone who's listening to this needs to go and rent this movie. It's available on Amazon. Um, anyone in making a living in agriculture, agribusiness, a student needs to, needs to see this movie. I've seen it twice and also seen the documentary. It has a Christopher Walken, Academy Award winner, is playing Percy Schmeiser. Second observation, and you, you shared this with me earlier, John, that your wife uh, is pleased with the um, composite character, Peter Schmeiser, which is uh, was played by Luke Kirby, who I understand uh, she got a better looking husband than she did in real life, as, as you said it, I think, right? Correct. Yeah, so that's okay with the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, t t tell us about what it's like to see your your family on the big screen and and how all that came together. Well, very it's it's very surreal as well too. Just like being in the in the Supreme Court. And the first time that I saw it was, I guess it was um, June fifteenth of uh, twenty twenty, and um, the um, producers had arranged a screening for the media buyers. So. Netflix, Amazon, Paramount, Apple TV, Universal Studios, all of them were invited because they were going to sell the rights to it and, and who's going to take it from that point on, the distribution. And so uh, they allowed all family members to, to watch it. And so we're, we're in the middle of COVID at this time. And, and so it was, it was done online and, um, 
I, I watched this movie. I've seen it three times. Okay, that premiere, uh, the Canadian premiere, and the U.S. premiere. I haven't seen it any other time, except for thirty seconds flipping through the channels one night, and and there it was on. Oh, it's on, next station. Um, and it, on each time of those three times that I I I've seen it, I'm not watching a movie, and so it's it's I view it completely different than any other movie that I watch just because of the closeness to the story, to the issue that we all had. And, and my siblings feel exactly the same way. Uh, when my mom saw it, uh, she fell asleep during it, which was probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> Cause it was a little late at night. Uh, but that was probably a good thing because she was a little anxious watching it uh, just because of, the memories that it would bring back. And, and that's the same thing for us. And, and then brings back memories of the time period at the time of what was going on at the time, not only with the case, but what was going on in their personal lives. Because as an example, when something happened, went, yeah, my daughter, Rachel was born right about that time. So those things came back and then, and then the nitpicking started and still does start where, because every movie takes some artistic liberties and in this particular case, um, every word of the court transcript is 100% accurate. Okay. And, um, the writers told us that because they were so worried about being sued that they made everything in the court transcript exactly word for word. But there were a few liberties that were that artistic liberties that didn't hurt the film at all. And so we noticed them when we watched the film, we noticed them and. I try my best not to ruin it for somebody um, and, you know, let them watch the movie and the, and in the entirety. And what I typically say, watch the movie and I'll talk to you about it afterward. And then if you want to know what was stretched a little bit or what was added, you know, I'll, I'll tell you then. So, you know, a good example is my dad was a farm equipment dealer and there's no reference to that in the movie at yeah. all. And, 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 um, when I talked to the writers at one of the one of the premieres, they said, you know, it's you have so much content and it's like, how do you how do you put these storylines in there? And and so sometimes you take the simplest path to tell the story in an hour and 40 minutes. Right. So, yeah, but uh, I'll probably watch it again sometime in the future, Mike, probably. Um, but uh, but for the time being, yeah, it. Uh, it's just an unbelievable experience. It's a it's a great storyteller. I've won one bet. In fact, I wasn't paid for the movie. Mom and Dad were paid for the rights, so a production company bought the rights. In before uh, before the Supreme Court decision was even uh, was issued. So that's how long that this thing was was in the works. So that, maybe I'll touch on that just a, just a little bit. So yeah, it was. About three months before the decision came out where they bought the rights and they paid mom and dad $5,000 a year on a five-year contract as they were going to build the, the, the script. And um, after five years, they renewed it for another five, renewed it for another five. And then when they got all the clearance to go to proceed with the movie, uh, then an entertainment lawyer came in and negotiated a fee for, for mom and dad on production of the movie so so there's no back end or anything like that it's just the rights were 
where it bought and and the writers sat down with all of us for hours um i think like three four days with mom on four or five different times mm-hmm. and then with my with leanne my wife and myself sat down with us for for almost a whole day uh putting the script together and uh the writers told me they reached out to Monsanto and and wanted to get some perspective for them from them as they were writing the script. And Monsanto basically told them, if you pre- proceed with this thing, we're going to get a court injunction and shut it down. And so that's why it took so long for this thing to hit the screen. And uh, when Bayer purchased Monsanto, one of the producers reached back, their lawyers reached back to Bayer and said, hey, we have this project. And as I understand it, what Bayer said, we don't care what you do, but you will not use the word Bayer in your movie. Mm-hmm. And okay. so they they were fine with Monsanto being in it, but they did not, they would not consent to Bayer being mentioned in it. So there's no mention of Bayer uh, mm-hmm. in it at all because it's a, it's a Monsanto story. So they started- Bayer bottom in 2018, I think, right? I think movie. it was, yeah, sometime around that time, by the okay. when they finally got approval so i think it was if i remember correctly it would have been maybe march or april of of 2018 and filming started the last week of august in 2018 okay. and and also in in may so once they got the go ahead um the writers called mom and dad and, and so they shared the news with us and and um in may um yeah, in May, they said that Liam Neeson had signed on to the role to play my dad. And uh, this is just priceless. I wish you could see it. But my dad had these old grade one, grade, you know, grade school notebooks that he always wrote stuff and kept in it. And so I asked him when they said the movie's going to proceed, I said, who's, who's going to play you? And he, and he goes, oh, I don't know who it is, but I wrote it down. So he pulls out this old little book and, and he goes, have you? He goes, Lion, Lion Neeson. And I said, would it be Liam Neeson? He goes, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And I, went, and I, I immediately went, holy crap. Like, now I finally knew what the scope or the scale of this thing was going to be. Because if they've signed him, I went, this is going to be a Hollywood production. And so, wow, that's quite something. So, um, about two months later, I'm visiting with my parents. And, and uh, I asked. I asked dad, do you have any idea when they're going to start filming? And he said, uh, yes, it's going to be this fall. It's going to be in, in Winnipeg, but they've got a new actor to play me. And I went, oh, do, do you know his name? And he goes, no, I don't remember his name. So he goes, pulls back this book again, and he wrote it down. And he goes, have you ever heard of an actor named Chris Walking? And I went, no, dad, I haven't. No, my dad. And immediately I thought, okay, so maybe this isn't a Hollywood production again. And so at the same time, dad said that uh, if you want to go watch some of the filming, you know, call the writer and, and they'll, they'll make accommodations for you because mom and dad were invited and dad was invited for a cameo and he said, not my deal or not my style and turned it down. So I did call the writer and just get the details to see if I could make it work. And and after she told me the details, she said, well, you must be pretty excited that Christopher Walken has signed on to play your dad. And I just went, what? Are you kidding me? And so 
Um, she went through the cast of who was all signed on Christina Ricci and uh, Michael J. Fox was supposed to play the lawyer. Mm. And um, in the first week of August, so they're starting filming the last week of August, the first week of August, he uh, broke his arm. And so Zach Braff, who played the, the lawyer, um, uh, filled in for him. And then she also told me he was going to play me. And I couldn't picture him but immediately after I hung up the phone. I have to admit, I did kind of Google him and see who was. I went, okay, now I'm over this game. Yeah. I did kind of do that. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, and then production finished up in Winnipeg. Uh, they were six weeks there. And then they went over to India and filmed there for, I think it was three, four weeks. And, um, and that was um, 2019. And then COVID hit. And, and so it was delayed. Um, and I think they, one of the writers told me they, they had to cut back some stuff out of the original score that they had, original um, uh, film that they had, just because producers, lawyers were just a little concerned about going over that line. And, and again, they were, they were worried about litigation. They could not get insurance for the film until they got, you know, that bear to sign off on it. And so lawyers are saying, you know, you can't proceed, you know, until you get insurance for it. So they were so, you know, cognizant of that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so June, 2020, when it went into uh, media firms, the buyers released in Canada on October the 9th and then in the U S on, I guess it was April 30th. And then a Canadian premiere and a U.S. premiere that I went to and represented the family. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, it's, it was it was interesting to me when when I saw the cast of it, Christopher Walken, Christina Ricci, the the actress who played your mother Louisa, I've seen in things before, Zach Braff. That it was clear that uh, someone really wanted this movie made and was willing to open up their wallet wide to get good talent to tell the story. Yeah, well, funny you should say that because are you familiar with Dwight Howard, the NBA player? Yes, he's the money behind the film. No kidding. I didn't realize that. To me, it was, how does that happen? Like, honestly, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. And I didn't even know about it until um, a colleague sent me an article about how Dwight Howard had, was providing the funding for this film and how he was getting into that business as he's winding down his NBA career. And I just like, how does that happen? What? Yeah. Like something about that story of the small farmer taking on big, big business or something there, right? I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And when it was released, you know, we still have theaters that are slow to open. So in the U.S., it really, it, uh, I think it opened in, um, in 35 cities, um, 35 largest markets. It went in theaters, I think, for, two and a half to three weeks but another bizarre thing um on apple apple downloads for drama it was in the top 10 downloads from may 1st until july 1st and so that was blowing me away as well too like who's watching this yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I, I gave you a hard time about what your wife said about the the appearance of the actor who portrayed you but i I have to say, I've known you, I think, close to 20 years or so now. Um, the actor who played you, I would say, is more was more sullen 
angry maybe than the John Schmeiser that I know. And what, what did your your friends and family think about the portrayal? Well, they all, oh, they all thought the same thing that that uh, and that I was that I was more preppy in the movie as well too, and that's that's fine. All of all of that is 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 good. Um, that's probably the one thing that I critique the less or the least amount in the whole movie is the actor that portrays me. Um, because I don't know, I guess my mind can make that separation from the, from the story, but, uh, yeah, he did, he did a great job of creating a little bit of conflict, which added to the dramatic effect of the movie. Mm -hmm. And that dramatic conflict was, it was never really there. Did I, dad and I disagree on stuff? Yeah. Did I want this whole thing to go away? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know, to this day, still proud, very proud of, of, of what he did and how he persevered. And, and the other thing that dad's lawyer always said is he just, he just couldn't believe that, um, no matter what stage of the uh, court proceedings we were at, how dad always had a smile on his face. You know, and uh, the weight of the world would be on his shoulders about the ramifications of this case, the impact on his family. But he still came to court every day with a smile. That's a that's a pretty special thing, quite frankly, to be able to persevere through it like oh, that. Yeah. But did yeah, you, did, uh, did your dad get a chance to see the film before he passed? He didn't. He didn't. So the Canadian premiere was in Calgary, and uh, that was on September 29th. And then they had just a limited release in some cities on October 2nd. And then the Canada wide release was October 9th. And he got up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom and fell and went into the hospital and, uh, and died on the 13th in the hospital. Yeah. So, you know, he never got to see it. And, uh, um, I don't know. I told him I saw it though. And uh, two things I remember telling him from that was, was if you saw it, you would like it. And secondly, at the end, uh, at the end of the movie, at the premiere, I said the movie theater was full to capacity for what COVID would allow at the time. And when the movie was done, I said there was a big round of applause from those that were in the audience. And he turned to me and said, oh, so they liked it then. And I said, yeah, dad, they liked it. And uh, and yeah, that's it. And uh, uh, he just never got to see it. It's mm-hmm. pretty sad, but it's just the way it is. Well, it's a between the the big picture movie and the documentary. It, it's special to know that this still lives on, and and you can watch the documentary and hear his voice whenever you want to now, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, like a. A lot of sons when their parents their dad passes away i think about them every day there's always something that comes up probably the nature of the work with the dealers association but uh mm. but yeah but you know a, a number of people have been so kind with comments about saying how about this has been a nice legacy for for dad on the fight and that, that's that's very true it is you know it's it's always there and so like for you know um our descendants you know my my siblings they're their children, their grandchildren. There's always something that we can show them on screen, you know, about about my dad, which is a pretty unique thing to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And, and by the way, um, 
I have I have a bunch of correspondence from Percy in my possession, actually, because I was out at H&R AgriPower years ago, and, and Ross Morgan had a in his entire white farm equipment binder when he was chairman. And, and for years, his secretary just put it all in there. He, he lent it to me. It's going to end up in, in Charles City someday. Um, but I was flipping through there, and I'm like, I'm seeing... Percy's name all over this thing. And he said, Oh yeah, he was, he was very much involved. Um, you know, and he, he goes, you know, John, I go, yeah, I know John. I didn't, I didn't have the pleasure of meeting Percy, but this would have been I don't know, 2018 or 2019 when Ross showed this to me. So um, I'll have to share that with you sometime, but um, so you had two stores. So um, the original location was in Bruno, Saskatchewan. And, and that one was called Schmeiser's Garage. Okay, and then in 1986, we set up a second location in Humboldt, which is 25 miles away, and we called that one Central Farm Sales. And then prior to selling in 2003, we actually closed the original location. It was just just more cost effective to operate in the larger community with a larger trading area, with a larger building, more staff, all of that. And, and so as dad was getting older and you know, slowly starting to slow down from the dealership and from farming as well, too. Um, we made the decision to close the, the dealership in Bruno, you know, what? Uh, pretty much right about at the same time as this whole thing started with Monsanto. But really, the decision was unrelated. Would you characterize him as a, a farmer first or a dealer first? What was kind of his? Like he, yeah, yeah. He would characterize himself as a farmer first. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And. Uh, he took great pride in, in, in being a farmer, but um, he also liked the business aspect of it, the farm equipment side of it and taking care of customers side of it like that. He, he really, he really liked it. And, uh, but in, in his heart, you know, he would, yeah, always put the farm first. I guess there's, there's, there's one spoiler that I'll give that I know dad probably wouldn't have liked in the movie so there's a scene where in a fit of rage my dad destroys all of his seed samples that he's collected over the years and um when i was a kid i was often wondering what are you doing (laughs) why why are you doing this and it was i don't know if it was a hobby or or curiosity or probably the real reason was you know always looking for the best seeds, the best germination rates. And that's what he was going to use the seed for the next year. But in the movie, there is a scene where in a fit of rage, he destroys all of the samples from the previous year. That never happened. It added to the dramatic effect of the movie without a doubt, but um, dad would have never done that. And maybe he would have been a little disappointed to see that. But but in the end, uh, that was impactful in the movie to say the least yes. and that was and, and that was one of those things where where i'm going he didn't do that you know during the movie instead yeah. of watching the movie i'm going hey wait no wait a minute i gotta think no no he didn't do it i'm glad when you pointed that out to me last year that that didn't really take place because that tore me up when i was watching the movie to see decades of 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 that research and in, in being destroyed the the mason jars being thrown on the ground so i'm good I was I was pleased to hear that wasn't uh, wasn't reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, it uh, when my mom saw it, she that was just before she fell asleep, and and she said too, oh, Percy never did. 
And uh, it was one of those, you know, great parent son moments where you have to remind your mother that this is a movie, mom. Yeah. <laughs> right. Related to this, I'm, I'm glad you brought that story up because I'm, I'm thinking we probably have some listeners and viewers out there who don't understand what seed saving was or the cultural, what, what your immigrant family brought that over and in how Percy described the promise of the next season seed in the movies. Can you give us the layman's definition of seed saving and how important that was to your family? Yeah. So when my great grandfather came from Austria to Minnesota, he brought wheat seeds along with him and uh, not a lot, um, but he brought some along with him and uh, they made its way into Minnesota and he planted um, some wheat off of a, where they were staying, uh, the place that we were staying, we planted some off there just to make some bread and, and uh, uh, save some of the seeds from that and brought them with them when they came in Saskatchewan. So this is something that was done generation after generation where you would put aside a small amount of your crop and use it as seed for the next year. And it, it didn't matter you know, what crop it was, whether it was wheat or barley or canola. This was just common practice. And then every so often, you know, at, at the time, farmers would, would maybe buy some new seed just because some new varieties were out. Some varieties that maybe had um, drought tolerance or shorter growing season. So there are, there's always new seed developments going out there and coming into the marketplace. But for the most part, what farmers did was they saved some seed and then reused it. Same, save some of the crop and then reuse the seed as, as next year. Well, I think now we're we're in a time period where that's not as common practice. And part of that is just because of the investments that the seed companies have made in the technology, you know, short season corn and and uh, or canola resistant to certain diseases. And it seems the seed companies can develop that technology quicker than breeding. That's you know typically goes on that with, with seed saving. So there's still a lot of seed saving that, that goes on, but more and more of these new technologies are are attractive to to the growers. So really what it comes down to, in my opinion anyway, Mike, is is the growers should have the flexibility to make the best decisions for their farm. And whether that's saving seed they've seed from the previous year or buying new seed and trying out a new technology, well let's make that their decision. Okay. What concerned dad at the time was Monsanto was even promoting the use of terminator seeds. Okay. So you planted the seed and you could not use that as seed because of the gene uh, put into it that it wouldn't be able to reproduce that, that concerned dad, because you're taking away customer's choice. And in his words, then tying you to the seed company, really close to the seed company. And he didn't, he didn't think that that option was a good option for, for a customer. They should have as many options and the most flexibility as possible when it comes. But yeah, so seed saving was something that, yeah, goes back quite a few generations in our family because that was, that was a common practice. That Terminator was that it would destroy itself after one season. Was that pretty much what it was? Well, after, after you seeded it, you could grow a crop, right? But you couldn't use the seed from that crop, it would not grow again. It would not germinate, right? Yeah. So, so they just put a gene in there that would it was only going to terminate 
only going to germinate on the seed that they gave you. The offspring of that seed could not germinate. Yeah. Okay. Mike, I'm still amazed after all this time that people are still interested in dad's story. I, I don't go by a month. Like right after the movie was released, it was almost daily where I got an inquiry about it. But still to this day, I don't go past a month where somebody asked me about it or asked me if I have any relation. You know, even Ross Morgan, the first time I met Ross, the first thing he said to me, are you in relation to Percy? And, uh, you know, just what a small world that we're in. Um, but the longevity that this issue has, you know, um, and to still have people interested in the story to this day has always been rather fascinating to me. Yeah. That, that in itself is encouraging to me. I, and I, and I will admit, I, I do like history. Um, No-Till Farmer, which my dad started in 1972, just had its 50th year in Forbes and some of these other big outfits have covered the fact that No-Till is turned 60. Our publication was 50, but it was 60 years ago that the first commercial plots went in in Kentucky. And the guy from Forbes said, this story is really important to know about how agricultural could move from the plow to something like no-till, because it reminds us of how change is still possible in a well-entrenched industry like ag, which is very tradition-oriented, right? So. Yeah. This, the same thing, I think, is applying here. People are wanting to know this story because they want to know what still is possible. One man, principled man, standing up, fighting for what he believes in, your your family sticking behind him. I guess so. I The, the transition that we've made is we wanted this whole issue to go away. We didn't wish this issue on anybody, <laughs> right, yeah. to now... I'm curious when somebody asks about it, you know, because uh, why still interested after all this time? Well, how about that? That that makes sense. So, you know, we've made that transformation, um, uh, you know, from an issue that we wouldn't wish on anybody. You wouldn't wish on your enemy to go through what my parents did to to one where a pretty cool thing has kind of come out about it. And, and you know, geez, two years since the movies came out to still have people talking about it uh, is kind of interesting. Yeah. But long after your dad is, is gone, he's still inspiring people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, this, this has really been fun. I really, really appreciate John, you making the time out of your busy schedule. I know you got a, a lot going on with the dealer association right now and courts and legislation and everything, but really appreciated this opportunity to sit with you and go back and tell a story that uh, I, I really think, needs to be told and our, our audience would be interested in going to tell every listener and viewer out there, go watch these two movies. So one is the uh, David versus Monsanto documentary that you can hear Percy's own voice. It's an out about an hour long exceptional documentary. And then there was the, the big screen Percy versus Goliath starring Christopher Walken as Percy Schmeiser and uh, Luke Kirby as our, our own uh, Mr. Schmeiser with us here today. So Encourage anyone in agriculture, farm equipment, retail, and service, agribusiness to go watch these two. Um, John, thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, enjoyed doing this. I hope those that go see the movie enjoy it. I certainly uh, I can, you can say that it was just an unbelievable experience to 
be part of that, even though I don't know how movies are made or anything like that. It's a very surreal moment. But yeah, if uh, if you can find the time, go see the movie and and it'll portray a little bit of the stress and anxiety that my parents went through at a time on on a on a case that had worldwide implications. So, but to you, Mike, thank you uh, for uh, having me. I appreciate this very much and and uh, thanks for everything that farm equipment does in promoting our industry as well that's it for this episode of the no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast thanks to john schmeiser mike lesseter and our sponsor crop vitality and thiosol a transcript of this episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are available at notillfarmer.com if you'll be at the national strip tillage conference this summer You may just run into John, whose company is sponsoring our Dealership Mind Summit that same week in the same hotel. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.